But before I do dive into that, uh, we're going to find ourselves in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and open it or load it. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the rows uh, scattered throughout uh, the building. And in the back, go ahead and grab one. That is our gift to you. Uh, but in addition to that, if you know somebody that would be blessed by that, man, hook them up. Now, while you guys uh, uh, flip your Bibles open, I'm going to try and stand still today. I, I tend to move a lot, though, though I'm still going to move. Part of the reason, here's, here's my first preface. So this, uh, this, this weekend, I woke up with a, with a cold. And so on a, on, a, on a scale of 1 to 10, 10 being horrible, I'm like a 4 and a 5. I'm hocked up on DayQuil and some medicine from Mexico. It makes me feel really good. But at the same time, if I pass out, James has already said he'll come up and just read my notes. One of the guys will just drag me off of the stage. Uh, so thank you in advance. If that happens, uh, please bear with me uh, as we walk through this time. Uh, before we do dive into First uh, Peter, which I'm really excited about this section... There's something uh, behind me. It's called the Grace Initiative. I want to talk to you a little bit about this. Uh, again, before we dive into our time, if you're a member, you uh, should have gotten this email uh, earlier this week. And so what we're doing over the next, uh, I guess, three Sundays or two Sundays, excluding this one, what we're doing is starting something called the Grace Initiative. The Grace Initiative is a brief giving campaign where our goal is to raise X amount of funds, and I'll tell you about that in a bit. Our goal is to raise X amount of funds apart from general giving. What these funds are going towards is specifically our community groups. One of the things, and I'll, I'll open up on that or I'll expand on that in just a bit. One of the things that we've seen uh, God do just through First Peter is that there are these chunks of the book where God has really been at work in and through our church. We spent a great deal of time in chapter 1 unpacking Peter's encouragement to the church in light of what God has done for us and what God is doing in us. It was that time that we launched our stories ministry. Many of you who were here got to see Kathy's story online or excuse me, the video. If you haven't, you can go to our website, check it out. It's a wonderful video slash testimony. Uh, so we launched our stories ministry through that as we walked into the section about pursuing holiness. What we saw is uh, God really pressing into us to lean into one another, ultimately his word, but to lean into one another as a church. And now as we continue the conversation about the pursuit of holiness, as it comes to the context where we're serving our community, our city, and in particular, those who don't know Jesus, we're starting this uh, small, short uh, initiative called the Grace Initiative. And we're calling it the Grace Initiative because the definition of grace is God extending uh, a favor, undeserving favor towards sinners. In other words, there wasn't anything that we earned to receive this grace. There wasn't anything that we've done or that we've merited in order to uh, earn this grace. It was freely given to him. Uh, and so what we want to do is raise X amount of funds so that those funds would go back into our community groups so that community groups would go out on mission into the city, into our community, into our missional partners and uh, bless them, uh, essentially bless them with grace, not only demonstrating the gospel, uh, but also declaring the gospel. And so our goal over the next two and a half weeks is to raise $1,000. To be honest, I think we could do a lot more. Like I think we can shoot for much more, but we're shooting for $1,000. This money's going to go, once again, back into community groups, and community groups are then going to go out on mission, as many of them already are on mission. Additionally, if you are not in a community group, let me encourage you to participate in a community group. I'm going to talk a little bit more about this in the sermon, but when it comes to not just community, but mission, both of those things are personal. In other words, we don't necessarily uh, uh, live out community or live on mission uh, through programs. We put the ownership of those two onto the church because that is our conviction from Scripture. And so when it 
comes to missional living, when it comes to doing things on mission, we put all of our eggs, most of our eggs, in the discipleship slash community basket. So if you want to join us on mission, if you want to be a part of what God is doing in our church through you, make sure you join a community group. You can go online, sign up, all that jazz. You'll get connected to one, uh, and then we'll dive in on mission. So that's the Grace Initiative. A blog is going to come out tomorrow morning on the website in the event that these drugs have prevented me from giving you all of the details. A blog is coming out tomorrow morning. Uh, if you would like to give or where I would encourage you to give uh, toward the Grace Initiative, you can do so one of two ways. You can go online to storehousemccallan.com slash give. Follow the instructions there. There'll be two slots, General Fund and the Grace Initiative. Or uh, beginning next Sunday, through the offering, we're going to do, I think, one or two offerings. Uh, when it comes to the envelopes that you guys see, the giving envelopes that are in the, the back desk or the envelopes that are on your chairs, uh, you're going to write grace on there. That way we know that it's going to go directly toward the Grace Initiative. If you guys have any questions on that, you can email me because I'm probably just going to run off stage after I'm done. So I'm, I'm, I'm going to be limited in my availability uh, this afternoon, but you, you, can, you can talk to Christina or some of the guys in, in, in the back. Anyway, that is the Grace Initiative. We're walking through that beginning today, and uh, we're going to be closing that up on the 24th. $1,000 is the goal. Going to go into community groups. Community groups are then going to go out into mission uh, to love and serve and uh, uh, preach the gospel to our city and our community. With that being said, let's dive into our time. Again, if you're just joining us, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Uh, I love this section of Scripture. Uh, I believe it is very encouraging. I, be- I love this section of, of Peter's letter. I believe it's very encouraging, uh, but I believe it is also... Uh, uh, very piercing in some of the things that Peter says. We'll talk about that in just a minute. So, um, yeah, let's let's go. So, before I actually read uh, the the section, here's here's where I want to uh, set us up. Here's the tone that I want to kind of establish as we walk into this section of of scripture. And the thing is, or the tone really is, that, that there is a reason that we so often preach about identity from the pulpit. If you've been with us for any amount of time, uh, you have heard phrases like, it is who you are that determines what you do, what you believe shapes how you live. And uh, from last week, who you are begins with what you believe about Jesus. We purposely preach uh, and, and purposely talk about our identity because the goal is always to make a big deal of the work of God for us in Christ. We want to make sure that the gospel is central to everything. We believe that the gospel is what affects change in not just one aspect of our life, but in every aspect of our lives. Additionally, we want to make sure that the gospel is central to our identity. We'll call that our gospel identity, but we want to make sure that the gospel is central to our identity for a couple of reasons. One of the reasons is that you and I are very forgetful. We are constantly forgetting who we are, and oftentimes we default to who we used to be. One of the other reasons we want to make sure that the gospel is central to our identity is so that we are fully aware, embracing not just the gospel, but God's work for us and in us, so that we understand what is gospel and what isn't gospel so that we wouldn't embrace other things that just because they have the word Christian on them or just because you see the word spiritual on them doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to talk about our identity in the gospel. We preach that the gospel is central to us because it is who we are that determines what we do. And that begins with the work of God for us. And so this morning, what I want to press into is going to be community and and mission. And what I want you to know about community and mission is that they are not at war with one another. They are not in conflict with one another. Instead, what I want you to kind of grasp the, the mentality that I want you to see is that if we are not grounded in who we are in Christ, then we run the risk of assuming the gospel. 
We run the risk of assuming the gospel and we run, run the risk of assuming that we're in community and that we're on mission for the right reasons. And so let me clarify what I mean by that. See, the Bible teaches that if we are in Christ, then we are a new creation. That's 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That we are a new creation. That our hearts have been renewed. That uh, our hearts have been regenerated. Our minds have been renewed. That we are a new creation. And as 2 Corinthians 5 says, the old has passed and behold, the new is here. As a result of what God has done. That is a gospel fact. The assumption, however, that, money, that many Christians tend to embrace instead is that salvation, that yes, God has saved me, and that means I have a golden ticket. I have fire insurance. That at the end of my life, I get to exchange this ticket so that I can walk through these gates. Yet that is not what Scripture teaches about the Christian life. The next thing, or one of the other things that the Bible teaches regarding community is that God has not only reconciled us to Himself, but He has reconciled us to one another. We looked at this last week, and we'll revisit this throughout our time, but last week we looked at uh, the fact that we are living stones interconnected to one another through Jesus, who is our cornerstone. So one way or another, we're in on this together. There's no such thing as a lone living stone. However, the assumption that many Christians in the church embrace when it comes to community is that there is consumeristic mentalities. That I will show up to church so that I can get fed. So that I will show up to community so that others can serve me. So that I will be a part of X, Y, and Z so that others can do X, Y, and Z for me. That's a consumeristic mentality. As a result of being reconciled not only to God but to one another, Scripture says that we ought to love one another, that we ought to stir one another up to love and good works, that we are to speak the truth to one another in love, and that we are to confess sin to one another. But oftentimes, what gets embraced is a consumeristic mentality. The Bible teaches that when it comes to mission, that we are to go and make disciples. I didn't say converts. Go and make disciples. Go and make and mature disciples. But the assumption that many Christians embrace in the church is that mission means programs. And it goes back to that consumeristic mentality. That we have a good kids program, and that's not bad. That's a good thing. But what happens is that mission becomes something that elite Christians do, or mission is just something reserved for church leadership. And so when we tend to embrace these assumptions, we are in community and on mission for the wrong reasons. We are in community and on mission for unbiblical reasons. And so the idea of what Peter is going to tell us today is that community and mission requires ownership. Community and mission first begins with who we are. That we must understand, not just recognize, but we must understand who we are in Christ. That because of the work of God for us in Christ, not only have we been reconciled to Him, but we have been reconciled to a redeemed community so that we would be on mission for His glory. And we'll talk more about that in just a minute. But the question would be, do you embrace any of these assumptions? Do you embrace any of these assumptions? Man, I'm good because of what God's done. He died for my sins. How convenient. I'm good to go. I can do whatever it is I want. The Apostle Paul says, should we continue to sin so that grace would abound? He said, by no means. It wasn't just so that you can keep doing what you were doing. It's so that you would die to sin and follow Christ and be alive in Christ. You have been freed from judgment, but not obedience. When it comes to community, uh, do you uh, embrace the assumption that it's all about what the church can do for me? 
Because if you're a Christian, then you're a part of the church. Acts 2, Luke tells us that they devoted themselves to one another, to the apostles' teaching, to prayer, to breaking of bread. They devoted themselves to one another. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the apostle Paul says uh, that, I, that you had become so dear to us that I didn't just want to share the gospel with you, but my very life with you. And when it comes to mission, do you embrace programs? Well, we can't really be on mission because we don't have all the great programs like some of these other churches. When you look at Matthew 28, Jesus says, go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. He didn't say go and make converts. He didn't say go and make big buildings. He didn't say go and make programs. He said go and make disciples. The ownership is placed on individuals. The ownership is placed on individuals, and I think many times we forget that. Who you are matters because as we looked at last week, we're interconnected to one another through Christ. And it's not for nothing. It's not for nothing. Who we are pours into community. Who we are pours onto mission. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning, beginning with verse verses 9 and 10. So again, if you've just joined us, you just woke up, it's okay, we won't judge, that's not what we do here, but a little bit. Uh, We're going to be in uh, chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. Uh, I'll read it, I'll pray, and then we'll dive into our time. This is what the Apostle Peter says. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. God, as we come before you, uh, Lord, we just want to lay everything out on the table. God, as, as, uh, as you have prepped our hearts through song, may you continue to work in our hearts through your preached word. Holy Spirit, would you take what lands on ears and, and, and uh, let that impact and affect our hearts. Would you not just compel us to change, but would you convict us so that we would, uh, so that that would lead to worship? God, would you set me aside and, and really just speak through me and at the same time give me the strength to finish well? God, I thank you for my brothers and sisters in this time. I pray that as we look to what the Apostle Peter says or what you say through the Apostle Peter, that our love for you would grow that we would come to know you better, that we would come to know you more, and for those who don't know Jesus, that they would come to know Jesus through this word. God, we love you, and we thank you for this uh, wonderful opportunity to worship you, and we ask these things in your name. Amen. So Peter begins by saying, but you. That's kind of important, because what Peter is doing is he is now shifting his focus back to the Christians, back to the church. Uh, to recap a little bit from our time last week, the ending of our time last week, Peter went to talk about who Christ is as the cornerstone, who Christ is as the living stone, and as a result, who we are then. And then he went in to talk about how Christ is also a stumbling stone or a stone of offense to those who reject him. And as he was talking through that, he comes into verse 9, beginning with, but you. So now he was talking about those who reject Christ, and now he is turning his attention back onto the church. So he's being very specific to who he's talking about, and he's not speaking generally. So he says, but you. So he turns his attention back to the Christians. um, And what he's going to do is that he's going to outline the markers of of a gospel community. 
And we're going to park here for a little bit. Uh, but, but once again, Peter is going to give for us the markers of a gospel community. And I love these because it's a list. And so we could go through each one, one at a time, so that we can unpack what the apostle Peter is saying to us. Uh, once more, he says, but you are a chosen race. What, what that means is that the church is defined by creed, not by culture or color, but by creed, by the standard belief. That is that Christ died on the cross for sinners. And that's the standard. The standard is not just what we believe, but what God has done for us in Christ. That's the standard. That's where it begins when he says that we are a chosen race. He says that we are a royal priesthood. We looked at what it meant to be the priesthood last week. If you were not here, you can listen to that sermon. But in short, when he says that you are a royal priesthood, uh, what he's referring to is kind of using language from the Old Testament, that Old Testament priests would bring sacrifices into the tabernacle. Uh, They would represent the people, and that's also where God dwelled. Now, as Christ has uh, fulfilled that and is the ultimate, the perfect, and final sacrifice, the tabernacle has been replaced by the church, and God, the Holy Spirit, dwells in the believer, making us all a priesthood. Making us all a priesthood. And what we looked at last week is what the priesthood does, right? One of the things that Peter said last week is, as a holy priesthood, you are to offer spiritual sacrifices. We looked at Hebrews 13, where the author in Hebrews 13 says that the spiritual sacrifices are the praises to God from our lips and us doing good for one another and others. So because God the Holy Spirit dwells in the believer as a result, we praise God for what he's done. That goes back to chapter one. We praise God. We worship God for what he's done in us in Christ. And then we do good to one another. We love one another. We serve one another and others. All of that as a result of what God has done. The third thing Peter says is that we are a holy nation. Now that's a really cool title. I'm not going to lie. That's a really cool title because no one can claim that title other than the church. No one can claim that title other than the church. That the church, the people, it's not a building, it's people. That the church has been set apart by God in Christ and we are all being sanctified. It is that process of sanctification we are a holy nation. The fourth thing is that Peter says we are his own possession. I love this. That we are his own possession. What does it mean to be his own possession? In short, God paid really good money for his church. God paid really good money for his church. See, God didn't save us because we are good, but because He is merciful and loving and a saving God. And He just didn't save us. Not only did He save us from the wrath of God, but He saved us into the family of God. It's one of the last uh, uh, exhortations that the Apostle Paul gives to uh, the pastors in Ephesus in Acts Acts chapter 20, the end of verse 28. He says, which he obtained, he's referring to the church, which he obtained with his own blood. God paid really good money for his church. And that's what makes us his own possession. Not just that we, our sins have been paid for, not just that we have been saved from the wrath of God, but that we have been saved into the family of God. So those are the four things that Peter tells us. And then he directs us to tell us, well, what a gospel community does. And so if a chosen race and a royal priesthood and a holy nation and people for his own possession, if that's who we are, if that defines a gospel community... If this defines what we just read, if this defines a gospel community, a redeemed community, then, then for what? 
Is it just so that we would float along? Is it just so that we would give God a thumbs up? Is it just so that we would just be? What is the purpose? And Peter lays it out for us. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Oh man, here, I want you to underline and circle a word, and that word is proclaim. Now check it. I'm going to read it from verse 9 one more time. He says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people... That's important. A people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Did he say you're a chosen race, a a royal priesthood, a holy nation, and you have leaders that proclaim, uh, uh, you have leaders that proclaim uh, his, uh, his excellencies? I don't think he said that. Let's read it one more time, right? A people for his own possession, not community group leaders that proclaim His excellencies for you. He didn't say that. He said, a people for His own possession. That you, He puts the ownership on the church. That you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness and into His marvelous light. Here are three things from just that Uh, verse, and we're going to look at the second half, but here are three things I want you to know. I don't think they're up on the notes, but here are three things that I want you to know. Peter, or God through Peter, calls us to proclaim His excellencies. In short, He is calling us to declare the Gospel. You guys catch that? He is calling us to declare the Gospel. If you look at the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I believe it's verses 1 through 5, Paul says, uh, I'm going to share what is of first importance, that Christ died for sinners and was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. It's a real quick punch to what the Gospel is. That is what we proclaim The gospel of Jesus and Christ crucified is what we proclaim. We do not proclaim 10 steps to a better spiritual life. We do not proclaim three easy things in the positive way of thinking. We proclaim the gospel. That is of first importance. Are you saying books are bad? No, I'm not saying books are bad. It's just not the gospel. That is what we proclaim. And sometimes I think we don't want to proclaim it, and so we use someone else's opinion of what they think the gospel is and say, you should read this. Instead of proclaiming the gospel. Number two, I want to be careful on this. I'll tell you this. I'll say it in a positive, and then I'll come back with kind of a negative, right? When you proclaim, when you share, when you speak the gospel, man, use your testimony. Talk about what God has done for you and what God is doing in you. That's a positive. And your testimony is not the gospel. Your testimony isn't the gospel. It's a gateway. Cool, man, use it. That's a tool. Use it so that you talk about the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And I get it. I'm not knocking it. I remember being a new Christian, right? And I was told, just share your story. Share your story. Everybody has a story. The Valley loves stories. And that's very true and that's very cultural. And so I would tell people all about uh, what God has done for me. And so look at me now. Now I'm in community group. Now I go to church on Sundays. Now I don't do these things. But I never once told them about the gospel. I told him, this is who I was, then I met Jesus, and now I go to church, now I go to community group, now I have this really cool calfskin Bible, I do all of these other things. But I never told them about Jesus. Your story is certainly yours. I'm not taking it away from you, that is yours, no one can take that away from you. And it is a tool, a gateway into the gospel. Your story is not the gospel. 
I think oftentimes one of the biggest assumptions that the church makes is that when we share the gospel, we want to tell everybody about who Jesus is. And then instead of telling them, man, you, you, you continue to follow Jesus after you become a Christian. And we say, man, this is who Jesus is. Some people meet Jesus. And now we say, you need to read this book. You need to read that book. You need to join this community group. You need to be in this Bible study. Make sure you go to this class. Make sure you do all of these things. And those things aren't bad. Those things aren't bad. I'm not knocking that but we reduce the gospel to a one-time thing and it's not something that sanctifies us. It's some author that sanctifies us. Sometimes what we do when we say, man, this is who Jesus is, people come to know Jesus and we say, great, awesome, now go figure it out the rest of your time. That's what discipleship is. We'll say, yeah, go figure it out. Well, I'm having trouble in this. Google it. We proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Let me tell you this. The thing people need before they know, and this, this stands for you and me, the thing people need before uh, coming to know Jesus is the gospel. The thing people need, the thing we need after we come to know Jesus is the gospel. The gospel is central in community. It is central to mission. It is central to discipleship. The gospel is. Not your technique or your tactics. The gospel that of which is of first importance. And then Peter closes that verse 10. He says, but you are now, uh, once you were not a people, but now you were God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What's he, what's he saying? He's saying that, that the church is a physical demonstration of the mercy and grace of God. The church is a physical demonstration of the mercy and grace of God. See, the Christian isn't better Right when he says, "Now you are uh, you weren't a people. Now you're God's people. You weren't. You didn't receive mercy. Uh, now you have received mercy." We don't read those and be like, "You're right. I was bad. Now I'm good. I used to do this. Now I don't." You're not better. The Christian is not better. The Christian is repentant. That's the difference. The Christian is repentant, not better. Again, sometimes we reduce the gospel to good and bad. You used to do bad, now you do good. You used to do good, now you do gooder. <laughs> the church is a physical demonstration of the mercy and grace of God. The Christian is not better. The Christian is repentance. Or excuse me, repentant. Peter continues going into verses 11 and 12. He begins by saying, Beloved, so he sets it up for us. He tells us who we are in, in Christ as a redeemed community. This is who we are. This is what we're to do. We're to proclaim, and he's going to keep that message going. It's still another message of who we are and then what we do. And so we go into verse 11, and he says, beloved. So he changes his tone a little bit. His tone goes from like, hey, make sure this is where you're grounded. This is who you guys are as a redeemed community. This is what you do as a redeemed community. And then he says, beloved. So he changes his tone to be a little bit more personal, a little bit more intimate with him. And he says, I urge you, and we're going to park here. He says, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. See, our, our gospel identity pours into community, but it also pours out to, onto, excuse me, onto mission. What that implies is that our gospel identity does not lead us to isolation. It doesn't lead us to even assimilation. In other words, when it comes to isolation, we don't uh, become Christian and then we're out on our own. Like that lone living stone that does, doesn't work. We're built on top of one another. We're interconnected to one another through Christ. You're not isolated. The next thing is that it doesn't lead us to assimilation in the sense that, okay, man, I became a Christian, so now I get to keep doing all the things I was doing because I got my golden ticket. Our gospel identity does not lead us to isolation or assimilation, but it does lead us onto mission. Check it. Every Christian is a sent one. Every Christian is a sent one. This is what the Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon said. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. I'll say it one more time. Every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. Now, 
Before we keep going, uh, and in particular to what Peter says in this section, this is where some of you tune out. This is where some of you tune out because now we're going to be talking about mission. And even if I was with you one-on-one, you'd push back, you'd become defensive, you'd tell me about all the reasons you're just not good at being on mission, and you'd give me all the reasons of how you're not the evangelist, and you're going to give me all the reasons of why you can't do this. All of those reasons, however, are grounded and founded in your pride. They may manifest themselves with fear. They manifest themselves with being defensive. They manifest themselves in a variety of other areas. But at the end of the day, it's really just pride. It's really just pride. Some of you may even take the position of looking at these verses... You'll look at verses 11 and 12, and you'll harp on verse 12, and we'll, we'll walk through that in just a minute. You'll harp on verse 12, and you'll say, man, I'm just not really good at sharing and speaking the gospel, but I'll conduct myself in a way that's good. And, and you'll quote, or, or maybe you'll live out St. Francis, where he uh, supposedly said, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. Oh, man, I remember loving that one. I love that one as a new Christian because I felt like now the ownership was off of me. I am just terrible at evangelizing. I'm not the greatest evangelist. And uh, oh man, thank you, Lord, for St. Francis of, what is it, Assisi? Yeah, and uh, preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. That's horrible, number one. Number two, uh, that's taken out of context and so it's a misrepresented quote. In that quote, and here's the thing, if you, don't, if you don't buy it, you can go to the Gospel Coalition. There's an entire article on him. Go ahead and do that on your own, on your own time. I'm not going to read it. But the idea behind the quote, the idea behind what he was saying is that what you preach best master, match your actions. It is almost an echo of what James says. He says, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Right? The breakdown of that verse is just because you're hearing the word doesn't mean you're doing it. So stop deceiving yourselves. That's what James is saying. I don't remember what that was. Uh, James chapter 2, I think. And so some of you, again, will want to tune me out. But if we go back up to verses 9, he says, you are a people for his own possession who proclaim his excellencies. In other words, you're not on the bench. You're not on the sidelines. You matter to this mission to proclaim His excellencies, but I'm just not good. Then we can high five. Man, I stumble every time when it comes to sharing the gospel. I get like all tied up. I start freaking out and I completely complicate it. Like I, I, I stumble a lot in doing that, and I know this is what God has called me to do. Not because I'm a pastor, but because I'm a Christian. So don't tune me out. In fact, repent. Peter writes, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So he's going back to that identity language. Well, what's it mean? It means that one, we don't belong here. Right? That the idea is we're trying to get home. We're trying to get home. That our minds are set on our heavenly citizenship. Go back to chapter 1. Remember, he he puts it out there. He's like, man, this is what God has done for you, and he is guarding this inheritance in the present. He is guarding this inheritance for you. So our mind is on our heavenly citizenship, but in the meantime, we are temporary residents on mission. In other words, we're not just passing by on the fringes. It's not like the world, it's doing its own thing and it's horrible, and we Christians are on the outside trying to go around it because we found this cool detour. It's not how it works. We're not walking on the fringes. In fact, what Jesus does is not only does he reconcile us to one another or reconcile us to himself and to one another, then he sends us back out. That's what he did with the disciples. Yet somewhere along the way, we thought sending us back out meant taking a detour around everything that's going on. Now, does that mean that we engage in all the things? I mean, we, does that mean we do all the things? No, it doesn't mean we do all of the things. But it also doesn't mean that all the things are bad. 
It doesn't mean that all the things are bad. And so he says, as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. He says something super profound here. Before he tells us about the mission, before he tells us about conduct, right, uh, among non-believers, he says something profound here. He says, abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Listen to me on this. The greatest threat to the Christian isn't the culture or our non-Christian friends. The greatest threat to the Christian is our heart and soul. That's the greatest threat. And we're going to talk about that in terms of the passion of the flesh. And so Peter says, abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now, we'll look at the word abstain. Some of us might think that's very legalistic. Well, it clearly says, don't do any of those things. And so we are to be outside of the world. We are to actually walk around on the fringes to make sure that we don't engage in culture. But the thing about, oh, wow, that was loud. But the thing about abstaining, the thing about abstaining is it's that it's not legalistic. It's just common sense. Abstaining is not legalistic. It's common sense. Abstaining is actually essential to recovery. Think of an alcoholic. Them stopping to be an alcoholic. What did they need to do? They needed to abstain from drinking. They abstained from drinking, and then the road to recovery was kind of paved. Abstaining isn't legalistic. It's just common sense. It's the road to recovery. Everyone's addicted to something. What are you addicted to? What are you addicted to? And you might ask, well, how does this even apply to mission? We'll get there. But it is missional. What is it that you're addicted to? That word passions, when Peter says abstain from the passions of the flesh, that word passions in the original language means over-desire. That our appetite for our desire is, is growing. That our, our appetite for these sinful desires, like we actually long for these sinful desires. That we have a deep desire to actually follow through with them. That desire begins in our hearts. Idolatry begins in our hearts. What we want and why we want it actually begins in our hearts. Listen to James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. This is what he says. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covenant and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You, do, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. James is getting at the same thing that Peter's getting at. That desires begin in the heart. And when we allow our passions to grow, what we're doing is actually feeding those sinful desires. We're feeding them because we actually long for them. We're feeding them because we do not long for pure spiritual milk. This is what we talked about two weeks ago. Right? Peter said, put away malice and deceit and slander and long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The reason our sinful desires grow, the reason we indulge in these sinful desires, whether it's something through a bottle or it's something through our control, our greed, our pride, our anger, the reason they grow is because we long and our appetite is for them and our appetite is not for the word of God. And so Peter says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. 
See, when we long for the word of God, when we long for Jesus, and we live in a way that demonstrates that, those who do not know Jesus see something that is actually very beautiful and compelling. Peter continues, abstain from the passions of the flesh that wage war against your soul. Here's the next thing we need to understand. The next thing that we need to understand is that there is a spiritual war going on for your heart every single day. I'm going to talk more about that in a little, but there is a war going on every single day. Why don't we feel that war? Mainly, most of the time, I should say that way, most of the time we don't feel it because we just don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously because we don't feel the effects from sin right away. I talked about this on Wednesday during Ash Wednesday that, that oftentimes we are like the, the frog in boiling water. We're not feeling it getting hotter. And so we keep doing it. And maybe you even categorize sin. Now, we're not talking about consequences. That's a different conversation. But maybe you even categorize sin. Little sin, bad sin. Oh, it was for this reason. Um, well, if only you had known this is why I had to do it or say it. You, you begin to categorize sin. And the truth is that we just don't take sin seriously. We don't take sin seriously. And so this war that is waging for our hearts, you don't feel it. You don't feel it. Listen, listen to Paul. This is Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. He says, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passion. So he's saying, die, like put your sin to death. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. So he's like, this is who you are. You were at one point dead. You were spiritually dead and God in Christ made you alive. So be alive and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you. Sin, since you are not under law, but under grace. Take your sin seriously. Stop categorizing it. Start repenting instead. We have been saved from the wrath of God, by the grace of God, and into the family of God. We have also been saved from the power of sin. We may have not been saved by the presence of sin yet, but we have been saved from the power of sin. So take your sin seriously. So Peter continues. Which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I'll make this really short, and I love this, but I'll make it really short. We both declare and demonstrate the gospel for the purpose of God's glory. We declare and demonstrate the gospel for the glory of God. That's what he says. Right? The idea is, yes, to point people to Jesus, but what's a bigger idea, what's a bigger priority is that we glorify God. He says, honor those who don't know him. Keep your conduct honorable. I want you to circle the word conduct. In the original language, this word is translated to the word kalos. Kalos means a goodness that commands itself to the beholder by its nobility and attractiveness. In other words, your conduct isn't just motivated by moral goodness. A lot of people do good all the time. You don't have to be a Christian to do good. Your conduct, if we're looking at that word kalos, your conduct is motivated by gospel holiness. It is motivated by gospel holiness. Listen to, this is Luke 6, beginning in verse 32. This is Jesus speaking. He says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners 
uh, love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. So again, if we're, if we're basing our, our role as like, oh, we do good. A lot of people do good. I mean, he just, he just kind of laid it out. And he goes on. But love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. The focus of the mission is the glory of God. Say it one more time. The focus of the mission is the glory of God. If this is not our focus, yes, we are to declare, yes, we are to demonstrate for the glory of God. If the glory of God is not our focus, then our focus becomes non-Christians becoming Christians. Now, that sounds bad. Now, that's a good thing. Hear me. Stay, stay with me. That's a really, really good thing, people becoming Christians. The danger is that we treat people like projects. If the goal isn't gospel holiness, if the goal isn't the glory of God, that's the goal. At the end of the day, the goal is the glory of God. And it's great that we're going to see people come to know Jesus. The hard part is, or the tragic part is, is that we didn't treat them like humans. We didn't treat them like image bearers. We treated them like projects. We ended up with a good quota for the year. We declare and demonstrate the gospel for the glory of God. And some will come to know Jesus. And we're going to celebrate with them, and we're going to love that time, and it's going to be awesome. And people are not projects. Whereas some tuned out at the beginning when it became about mission and, and proclaiming the gospel, and I don't know about that, this is the part in mission where some will tune me out again. Well, we have to go. We have to preach. We have to talk. We have to do these things. We got to build these houses. We got to build these ditches. We got to go to all these people. Yes, cool, man. Let's do it. Let's go for the glory of God. People are not projects. So stop treating them like they are. We find our worth in the finished work of Christ. We find our worth in what God has done for us. And as a result, we declare and we demonstrate the gospel for the glory of God. And as we do that, as we're motivated by gospel holiness, he writes at the end of verse 12, that when they speak against you, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the, on the day of visitation. It tells us a couple of things. It tells us that as we do these things and as we're properly motivated and our focus is on the glory of God, some people will become Christians. Some people will follow Jesus. That's what he's saying. Some people will come to know Jesus. And in addition to that, I would add, where he says, they speak against you as evildoers, so they may see your good deeds and glorify God. Mission takes time. Mission takes time. Just because you share the gospel once and they didn't become a Christian... It's going to happen. It takes time. It's a process. It's what Peter was talking about last week, where as you come to him, there is a process that undergoes with mission. It is a process. So chill, be faithful, do it to the glory of God, and keep going. Honorable conduct is motivated by gospel holiness. And so here's where I'll close. In a lot of those, uh, I don't know how many verses were, three or four, uh, in a lot of those verses, some of you want practical stuff. So what do we do? Okay, here are four things, right? 
Here's the first one. I don't think they're on your notes. Get your pens ready. Number one, follow Jesus. It's pretty, I thought of that one myself. Um, Follow Jesus. Repentance is what restores joy. Repentance is what restores joy. Follow Jesus means denying yourself. It means putting something that you think will bring satisfaction to death so that your eyes would be fixed on him and him alone. Following Jesus is is a process. Again, verse 4 from last week. As you come to him, there is an ongoing process both for the Christian and the one who doesn't know Jesus and is hearing about him. There is a process. And so if you don't know Jesus, you, you can come to know him. That's, that's one of the most uh, common things that we see in Scripture. Come to me. Come to me. I'll, I will give you rest. Coming to Jesus uh, gives you a, a new heart, a renewed mind. Follow Jesus. Number two, fight for image and fight sin. Here's what I mean when I say by fight image, for image. The work of Jesus, right? The work of Jesus has reconciled us back to God the Father. So that means that as Christians, we have 24-7 access to God the Father as sons or daughters. That is who you are. Fight for that. Don't let culture tell you who you ought to be. Culture did not reconcile you back to God. God came into human history as the man Jesus Christ went to the cross to die for sinners so that we might be reconciled to God, so that we would be right with God. So fight for that. If you're reading something that says 10 ways to become more spiritual, more spiritual-minded, that's not going to restore or uh, encourage image. What, what, is, what, what does in Scripture, the work, like in Scripture, not only does God reveal himself to us, but, but in Scripture, we are reminded of what God has done for us. We spent like three or four weeks just on that in First Peter, like prepping for that. So fight for it. In addition to that, fight sin. Fight sin. We, we talked about this a, a while ago. There's a war going on. There's a war for your heart every day. And we don't feel it a lot of the times because we don't take our sin seriously. Because we don't think we're that bad. Fight sin. Number three, fulfill the Great Commission. Right, he said, go and make disciples. He didn't say, go build buildings. He didn't say, go start programs. He didn't say, go make converts. He said, go and make disciples. Well, what about those who are already disciples? Then mature them. But the ownership is on you. It's on us. The work of ministry is the responsibility of Christians. Fulfill the Great Commission. Number four. This one's, I'm still like, kind of chewing on this. So this is a whiteboard session, us, us and me right now. The fourth one is stop assuming the Holy Spirit. This actually ties back into fighting sin and fighting for image. Stop assuming the Holy Spirit. I'll explain this through a story. A couple days ago, remember an individual, he was telling me, excuse me, he was telling me, uh, he was confessing some sin. And I said, all right, so what, 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 what happened? Like, we're, we're just kind of work, working and walking through some stuff. And uh, he says, man, I gave in to uh, temptation. I looked at porn. I said, okay. I, I eventually want to talk about that. Tell me this. What happened over here? And he said, I woke up in the morning, and, man, I could feel this urge. Like, I was tempted to go and look at it. And so what I did was I stopped what I was doing, and I just prayed. I prayed that God would give me strength. I prayed that God would remove this temptation. Like I turned to scripture and man, that desire went away. I said, okay, that's, that's really good. Well, then what? He says, then I finished my morning routine and I gave in. And I said, okay, what happened from the time that you prayed to the time that you gave in? What happened? And he was kind of like, 
uh, not sure. He's like, I, I really, I really don't know. And so we started digging a little bit. Right? I started digging a little bit. And the idea behind this is he assumed he was good and he assumed that the Holy Spirit was like taking care of all the things. In other words, he prayed, the temptation went away for that hour or whatever it was. And then because he prayed, he thought he was good. And so his defense and his guard was down. And as his defense and his guard was down, temptation came and he gave in. Oftentimes, that's what we do when it comes to not waging war and not fighting our sin. We will say a good prayer in the morning. We'll even read some scripture and we'll say, we feel good. This feels really good. I've armed myself enough. And then we'll go out into the rest of our day and we'll stumble and we'll fall and we give in to temptation. Why? Because we let our defenses down and we thought, because we said this one prayer at 6 a.m., we're good to go at 10 a.m., we're good to go at 11.30. We assumed the Holy Spirit. We assumed that he's got it. He's got it. I prayed. I prayed this morning, so I'm good. There is a war waging for your heart on the daily. It's not just one hour of the day. It's not just twice a day. It's going to happen repetitively throughout the day. You don't just long for pure spiritual milk on Sunday mornings. You don't just long for pure spiritual milk when you do go to community group, if you go to community group. You don't long for pure spiritual milk only when it's time to go to bed because you have this nightly routine where you give prayers, though that's good. You long for the pure spiritual milk all day. Remember the analogy of that uh, that Peter gives us, that of an infant? An infant is wailing and screaming, do infants only uh, wail for milk like once a day? No. I'm, I'm, I'm asking. I've never had an infant. Right? No. I mean, you hear the stories. Mom and dad waking up at 2 in the morning, 4 in the morning, 5 in the morning, 5.30 in the morning, 5.45 in the morning. Right? They're running on like 30 minutes of sleep. Why? Because the baby's waking up, needs to get fed, needs to get changed, all this stuff. They're, they're longing for mom and dad. It's not a one-time thing. It's not just in the morning either. We need to long for uh, the pure spiritual milk because there is a war going on. Stop assuming the Holy Spirit. Oh, he's got me. He's good. Sanctification is twofold. There is God at work in us and us responding. So stop assuming the Holy Spirit. Here's what I'll close with. God in Christ has reconciled us to himself, brought us into a redeemed community to live on mission for his glory. Let's pray. God, as we close our time, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, uh, and that you would be at work in us right now but that you would be at work in us, wrecking us, revealing our sin to us, putting our sin out uh, exposed and on the table. Lord, have, have we assumed you? Have we assumed the Christian life that, that salvation is not a gift that was bought by Christ, but salvation is really just a golden ticket? Have we assumed that, that, that community is... is really just means being consumeristic? Have we assumed that that mission means programs and it's for someone else to do? Lord, have we assumed that when we sin, it's really your fault because you didn't have our back? God, would you forgive us of our ignorance and foolishness? God, would you forgive us for finding satisfaction in the things that not only don't satisfy, but ultimately in the things that kill us. God, would you forgive us for our moral performance where uh, we do things because we're trying to impress you rather than abide in you? Forgive us for treating other people, our neighbors, like projects. God, all of these things... 
are examples of, of our passion for the flesh. They may not necessarily sound bad, and I think that's the problem, Lord, that when we hear them, we think, well, it's not that bad. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sins so that we would see that we have transgressed against the Father, that we have sinned against you, Father, and you alone. Lead us to take ownership. To take ownership of our sin, to take responsibility for our sin, to be honest with our sin. Not so that we would get back in your good graces. Jesus has done that. We, we, we belong to you already. This is a reminder of your grace where it breaks us so that we would put those things to death and so that we would respond with the life that you've given us. God, as we go into a time of tithes and offerings, Lord, I pray that this is a time where, uh, this is a time of continued worship. This is where we give you our stuff. This is where we give you our stuff uh, also for your glory so that your gospel would be expanded, so your kingdom would be made known. God, give us good wisdom and insight and direction to be good stewards of these finances. God, as we look to things like like the Grace Initiative, uh, God, let this be something that both demonstrates and declares the gospel of your grace to those who don't know you. And whether they come to know you or not, I pray that you would be glorified in this. Not us, not our name, but your name. God, we thank you for this opportunity to worship you through your preached word. Continue to be at work in us as we respond, um, not just through giving, but in communion and through uh, song. We ask all these things in your name. Amen.